All right, let's grab our Bibles and let's stand together this morning. And uh, while you're uh, standing, if you would turn with me to Colossians 1. Colossians 1 this morning as we continue our study through this book. If you're here without a Bible, there are some men coming down the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you raise your hand, they'll get you a Bible. Just raise your hand high so they can see you. And turn to Colossians 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3 this morning where it reads like this. Paul writing, he says, we always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. And you have had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. This same good news that came to you is now going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day that you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. And here's what we pray. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way that you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. And all the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so you will have all the endurance and the patience that you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Let's pray. So, Lord, we turn to you now and we ask that you would continue to speak, that you would continue to use this morning to connect with us on a very deep and personal level. As we've begun with singing and with praying to you, we continue now by listening and leaning forward and asking you to speak. Would you please open up the words of your scripture that we might see Jesus fresh and new this morning? You've penned these words that we might know you more and that we might understand more what it means to be loved by the the king of the universe. And so we pray now this morning that you would speak to us and that we would have ears to hear. Fill us fresh with your spirit and give us fresh ears to hear. Give us moldable minds to be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray that together in his name, in Jesus's name. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. So as we continue our look at the book of Colossians, this is one of the many letters that was written by Paul, an early Christian leader, to groups of Christians all over the world. Uh, Really, the majority of the books in the New Testament are his letters. Um, And in the back kind of quarter of the Bible, you're going to find letter after letter after letter written by this man uh, who God radically transformed and then sent on a, a pretty epic series of missionary journeys to really become one of the major catalysts for driving the good news about Jesus and spreading it through the known world at the time. Um, But when we get to the book of Colossians, we have reached Paul towards the end of his life, or as one 
writer puts it, the autumn of his life. He had had his spring when he had first met Jesus on the road to Damascus and was radically transformed from a man who was once persecuting Christians to becoming one of the leading voices for Christ in the known world. In the spring of his life, he was just a sponge and soaked up the goodness of who God was and sat underneath the teachings of Jesus' disciples. And then into the summer of his life, he went out to the known world, spreading the good news about Jesus everywhere. In some places, uh, being uh, persecuted violently. In other places, finding sweet, sweet entry with the community. Uh, And uh, now he's not in the summer of his life. He's in the autumn of his life. We find Paul in this letter writing from a prison cell. He has been chained for his very work, spreading the good news about Jesus. And from that prison cell writes some of the most encouraging words that have ever been penned in human history. Among this book and his other writings, the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, I mean, three of the most encouraging books Uh, Books that are filled with words that people have been clinging to for encouragement and for hope for thousands of years are written by this man in this moment of his life when he's alone and he's chained and he's locked up in this prison cell. From this prison cell, he writes words like these. Even before God made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. It gave him great pleasure. That sound like a man who's in a prison cell? These are some of the most beautiful, most hope-giving words we've ever read. And they're written by this man, radically transformed by Jesus, having spent the good years of his life bringing that good message of Jesus to the world. And for all of that, he's imprisoned. He writes in another letter from this prison cell, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved the things that Jesus has laid for me or that I've already reached perfections, but I press on. He's in chains. I press on to possess that perfection for which Jesus Christ first possessed me. No, brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting what's behind and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which Christ has called us. This is a man who God had so rivetedly, so radically grabbed that even when he's in this prison cell, he can't help but speak encouragement and and cast vision and inspire and encourage others to follow Jesus. Here in this letter, he's writing to these group of Christians in Colossae. It's a lesser known town in what's now modern day Turkey. And uh, Paul is writing to encourage them. He's in prison. And this is no woe is me letter. He's like, I'm hearing what's going on. It's amazing. Keep going is basically the message of this letter. And uh, here in this section of his letter, we get to peek in on Paul's prayer for these Christians. In many of his letters, Paul would tell his audience, I've been praying for you. In a few of his letters, he would actually tell people what he's been praying for them. This is one of those cases where he not only says, I want you to know that I'm praying for you, but he also shares the details of what he's praying. Let's just stop and ask yourself for a moment. If you could ask God for anything, it's 2020, brand new year, new year, new you. If you could ask God for anything this year, what would be at the top of your list? Don't shout out loud. But think about that for a moment. Here in this section of scripture, we get to see what are the top three things that Paul would pray for these Christians as he did so from that prison cell. And my hope this morning is is that we would catch a little bit of the vision that he casts. He prays to encourage them. I hope we would be encouraged. He prays to make them hungry. He's trying to paint a picture for them of what they're 
what their future, what their potential could be. And I hope this morning that we catch a little bit of that vision and we get hungry for the kind of things that Paul prays for. Paul begins by sharing that he's been praying for them in verse 3. We'll pick it up there. It says this, he says, We always pray for you and we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. There is a beautiful progression that's described here. Listen to this. If you work backwards from what I just read, what Paul is saying is is that he's been hearing things about this city. He's been hearing things about the Christians in Colossae. He heard that the good news came to them and that when it came to them, it brought hope, this beautiful, confident hope. And that from that hope sprang faith in Jesus Christ and a deep, genuine love for other Christians. That's what happens. When the good news of what God has done for us takes hold of people's life, it brings hope. And that hope springs into faith and love, a real, transcendent, deep, genuine foundation of faith and an outflow of love from our lives. Verse 6 He continues, he says, this same good news that came to you, it's going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. I love how Paul describes the good news. What is the good news that he's talking about? It is, as he puts here, right at the end of verse six, the truth about God's wonderful grace. The good news of Jesus, the good news of what God has done is the the mega theme of the Bible. It is the narrative of human history. It is the reason why we exist is to understand and to be transformed by that truth. Uh, It's the reason why we as a church exist. It's on our we believe statement on our website. At the very beginning of this church, uh, we set out to try to put in writing um, a summation of what it is that we believe. What are those key critical foundations? I'm going to read from... Uh, from that section of our website here this morning, what is the truth about God's wonderful grace? It is this. Here's the truth. This world, this universe, and life itself are the product of wisdom, creativity, and power of an eternal and a personal God. But we and this universe are fallen. In the very beginning, we threw off God's authority and we spurned his love. We sinned against God. And as a result, this world is fallen. We are fallen and God is just and he judges sin. But in his great love for us, God sent his son Jesus into this world, into human history to be our savior. Jesus took our place underneath the just punishment from God for our sins. He gave his life on a cross for us so that we might find life in him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed For our sins, he was beaten so that we could be made whole. And by his stripes, we are healed. Jesus conquered sin and death for us through his resurrection from the grave. And now all, all can come and find forgiveness and restoration through placing their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the truth about God's wonderful grace. And when that message makes its way into a human heart, it produces hope a hope that produces a foundation of faith and an outflow of love. In verse seven, Paul continues, he says, you've learned about this good news from Epaphras, our beloved coworker. He was Christ's faithful servant. He's helping us on your behalf. And he told us about the love 
for others that the Holy Spirit has given to you. As Dallas explained last week, Paul had never been to Colossae. Uh, in all of his missionary journeys, um, he'd never made it to Colossae. At this point, um, the gospel came to this community through this man, Epaphras, who likely met Paul and met Jesus through Paul while Paul was at Ephesus. And so this one man, Epaphras, takes the good news of Jesus. He comes home to his hometown. He begins to share that with his friends who share it with their friends. And and pretty soon there's a movement for Jesus Christ, a church that has exploded in that community. Verse 9, so he, he starts here and beginning to share what it is that he's praying for them and says, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. So what were the top three things that Paul thought about when he prayed for these Christians? What kinds of things might we pray for ourselves in this coming new year? The first thing Paul prays for for these folks is wisdom. Wisdom, look at verse nine. He says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Complete knowledge of God's will, spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul is saying, I want the Lord to fill you with his wisdom. What is wisdom? Um, beyond knowledge, wisdom is, is the ability to, to appreciate our, our circumstances for what they truly are. So much of, of life is being able to, to kind of filter through the noise, to understand the true signal of what it is that's going on around us, whether that's at home, whether that's in our relationships, whether that's at work whether that's raising our families, whether that's kind of navigating through the decisions of life. There's so many inputs. There's so much noise. How can we really make sense of what's going on around us? Wisdom is the ability to truly understand the nature of what's going on around us. It's the ability to ask the right questions, to really get to the heart of a matter, to really understand and appreciate things for what they really are. Wisdom, more than being able to understand the true nature of what's going on around us, is to be able to sense the consequences of the actions that we might take before we take them, is to be able to anticipate, if I were to, to, go, to go down this road, how does that impact my life down the road? How does that influence those that are entrusted to me? How does that impact the, the key mission of my life? Wisdom is the ability to fully appreciate our circumstances. It's the ability to anticipate what's going to happen if we were to choose a certain road. Put short, it's the ability to have good judgment. It's the ability to have sound judgment, an accurate perspective of both our current circumstances and what lie ahead. Um, It's interesting, you know, through the seasons of life, I wonder what would have been number one on Paul's list. Uh, As a young man, maybe he would have prayed most for courage for them, that they would have boldness and tenacity, that they would go and be great for God. Um, I don't know what his prayer would have been for them, but in the autumn of his life, What his prayer, number one prayer was for these Christians was wisdom. I think there's something telling about that. Um, It's interesting in the Old Testament, Solomon, when he wrote famously uh, the bulk of what's represented in the book of Proverbs in the Bible, is pretty much one thing over and over and over and over again that he says. And he says, get wisdom, get wisdom. When When we stop and think about just how big a deal our little lives are. Like, we got to get beyond ourselves. We're not that big of a deal. So our pride needs to be destroyed a little bit. But when we get past that, start to get humbled by and sobered by, though we're not a big deal, um, our lives are not our own. And every decision that we make and every posture that we take and every circumstance that we're in has 
a ripple effect that influences countless lives around us that we will never be able to bring back. Words that we'll never be able to unsay. Things that we'll never be able to undo. And and every moment comes and it passes and we don't get to repeat it. And it is wild and in some ways nerve-wracking to think about the kind of consequences that are attached to our lives. And it is that reality that should take us to the throne room of God and say, dear God, would you please grant me wisdom? Grant me wisdom. Help me to be able to fully appreciate my circumstances, to understand the consequences of the things that I may say or may do today. God, help me to have the sound judgment that I need to be faithful in the places that you've placed me. And now what's beautiful is that our God invites us, invites us to come and ask him for wisdom. The scriptures say that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him come to God, generous God, who will give generously. And so like Paul, we can ourselves this morning say, Lord, I want, in light of the the sobering reality of the influence that my life has, God, would you grant me wisdom? Uh, Paul explains why he makes this a priority by uh, continuing in verse 10. He says, listen, if you had wisdom, the wisdom that God gives, then what would happen? Then you would live in a way that always honors and pleases the Lord. There will be, for those who truly get wisdom, an inevitable shift, a transformation in their lives. Their lives will honor and will please the Lord. There's a really kind of cute picture that comes to my mind. Um, The Pixar film Up, have you guys seen this one? Uh, find an excuse to see it if you haven't. It's all right. You don't have to be a kid to enjoy a good animated film. And by, you know, Disney Plus is now out, so find someone, Verizon, Comcast to pay for it for you and watch it. And then you'll subtly get addicted, and I'm sure Disney's going to end up with billions more because of this stupid thing. But, you know, who else is on that train? Anybody? All right. So in that film, Up, there's this portrait of this, you know, young couple that be- becomes an old couple and tragically the, the wife uh, passes away. And so this old man who had so deeply loved his wife is left alone and becomes the, you know, the quintessential grumpy old man. And uh, the entirety of that film is a narrative of him embracing this new young, you know, boy who comes into his life uh, in an unlikely set of circumstances. But all along the way, Mr. Fredrickson, the key character of the film, is guided by this undying love for his wife. There is such a love for his wife, like his entire mission, every day, he is filled with her. Even though she's not there, she's with him. And there's this beautiful tenacity about his deep love for her and how everything he does every day is in constant conversation with her and is for her pleasure, even though she is no longer alive. And I think in that picture of Mr. Fredrickson is a picture of what becomes of a man, of what what becomes of a woman when they are filled with the wisdom of God. Their life becomes no longer about themselves, but becomes about living in a constant state of wanting to please the Lord, of wanting to to bring him pleasure. And that's what Paul's describing. He says, I want you to get wisdom because when you get it, you start to realize there is a kind of life, there is a way to live that is far sweeter than what your own desires would ever lead you to, a life that honors and pleases the Lord. In verse 10, he continues and says, if you get this wisdom, your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. There is hope in a life that's filled with wisdom and that that life will not be wasted. So much of what we spend our time and our efforts doing, what will ever come of those things? 
but one who is filled with the wisdom of God will find themselves hungry to do and busy about doing the kinds of things that will echo on with good things for all of eternity. A life that is connected to God's wisdom will bring God pleasure and will produce fruit. That's what Paul's saying. And lastly, in verse 10, he says, and all the while you will grow. You will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Man, I hope I don't make the same mistakes in 2020 that I made last week, uh, last year, last. I, I hope that it's different kinds of stupid stuff that gets me into trouble. I hope it's, it's other kinds of stuff. I hope that I grow. And, and I can have more than just a hope. I can have a, a confident expectation that that will be my future if daily, if repeatedly, I come to God and say, God, would you fill me with your wisdom? Because when God places more of his wisdom in us, we will grow. Not might, we will grow. Paul says, I'm praying for wisdom for you. And when you get that wisdom, you'll live in a way that pleases the Lord. You'll live in a way that produces real fruit. You will live in a way that you will grow. Uh, Second, Paul prays for strength. Beyond wisdom, he prays for strength. Let's look at verse 11 together. He says, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all of God's glorious power. Now, I said earlier that if Paul were a younger man, maybe on the top of his list would be courage, would be tenacity. We might think for a moment that that's what Paul's getting at here is this kind of bold, you know, power is what he's praying for. But we get a little bit more insight into the kind of strength he's describing as we continue to read in verse 11. He says, I'm praying for strength, not just strength. I'm praying that you would be strengthened with all of God's glorious power so that you will have the endurance and the patience you need. Now, don't misunderstand me. Boldness, when it's properly applied out of a ambition for God, is usually a good thing. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is, is looking down what will be the long corridor of these Christians' lives. And he now, as the man who is in the autumn of his life, he knows what it means to walk with God. He knows that it is not a sprint. He knows that it is a long pilgrimage with some really, really fun stuff and some really, really not fun stuff. He knows that to walk faithfully with and for Jesus through the sum of our lives is going to take strength, not just boldness, not just courage, but the strength to to commit to long obedience in the same direction. The kind of strength that produces what he describes here as endurance and patience. It's true. Following Jesus Christ has some of the sweetest, most wonderful experiences that you can ever imagine this side of eternity. But the sum of a Christian's life is going to be filled with its share of dark valleys and very difficult seasons. And for us to make the distance, we need strength. Here's the problem. We don't have enough. It is not a matter of willpower or of our own tenacity that will carry us through to the future that God has for us. So that's the bad news is we, we, we can't hack it. But the good news is in God, our father, there is this unending supply of what Paul describes as glorious power that God wants to share with us and provide us the strength that we need. I love when this picture of Jesus in his life, he was at one of the very large festivals in Jerusalem when the city of Jerusalem would have been packed out with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews who would come there to celebrate for the holiday. And he looks out over them 
people who had been for years led by broken religious leaders who had used their power to draw more influence to themselves instead of bringing the truth of who God is and serving those that they led. They were abusing their power and totally mistreating these people. And Jesus was disgusted by that kind of religious hypocrisy. And it's almost out of like broken regret over the state of what the nation was at the time. Jesus stands and he speaks over the people and says, if any of you are tired and are thirsty, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my burden on you for I... (laughs) I am meek, I'm strong, but I'm controlled. um, There's this reality to the Christian life that I I wish it wasn't what it is. It is is the truth that there is, is far more hardship and pain in a Christian's life than what we would ever wish on our worst enemies. And it's not that Christians are uniquely uh, pained. This world is a fallen world, it's a broken world. And whether you follow Christ or not, your life will likely have more than its fair share of difficulty. But the beautiful hope, the beautiful, beautiful well that we're being invited to through Paul's prayer for this Colossian church is that in God is a glorious wellspring of power that will give us the patience and the endurance that we need. We're not strong enough, but hallelujah, he is. So he prays first for wisdom, second for strength. Lastly, he prays, for something unexpected. I don't know if it's, if it's surprising for you. It's surprising for me. I mean, if, if you're thinking about this really um, older Christian, authoritative uh, voice for God in the world, top three things. Wisdom makes sense. Endurance makes sense. What else? Self-sacrifice. Piety. Holiness. What does he pray for? Look at verse 11. He says, and may you be filled with joy. With joy. I think this is so sweet. I think this is Jesus Christ. I think this is the sum of the the Bible. (laughs) That God's ultimate desire for us is that we might find him and in him find joy. It shouldn't be surprising to us that that is God's plan, but it is, isn't it? Because when we think about if God could get a hold of me and like fully do in my life what he wanted, a lot of us kind of brace for impact. We think of like a ton of self-sacrifice and pain. We think of having to give up a lot of things. We, have, we think about all of this stuff. And, and you know what? To some degree, all of that might be true. But you know what? That is all of it, an end, a means to an end. God is not interested in self-sacrifice for self-sacrifice's sake. He is not interested in holiness for holiness's sake. He's not interested. He is interested in us finding him and in finding him, finding real joy. It's the truth. We shouldn't be surprised by this, but we are. In uh, Jesus's final words to his disciples before going to the cross, he had said a lot to them. And as kind of a capstone to what he had said, he says this, I've said everything that I've said to you that you might have my joy and that your joy might be full. I like what Peter describes in his letter, 1 Peter 1, he says, in Christ there is a joy that is inexpressible and is full of glory. Um, I, uh, this week, in, in thinking about this passage, returned to a, a well I like to drink from, uh, C.S. Lewis. 
um, but a specific well of his, uh, his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Um, if you've never read it, it's probably, it's a, it, you got to get through, he's very British and it's very different English. Uh, you know, he's not American, um, so they, they're weird. Uh, but you got to get through his version of English. But once you can, it's a short sermon. You can find PDFs of it online, and it is just amazing. But in his The Weight of Glory, it's a sermon, he writes this way. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, if we just think about what it is that Jesus promises to us, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think that's true. I don't think we believe. I don't think we get just what it is that God intends for our lives, both now and in eternity, one that is filled with joy. Paul, as he prays this over the church and says, I am praying that God would fill you with joy, he kind of gives them a hint as to how they might get there when he says this in verse 12, always thanking the Father. You know, he's, he's kind of like praying like a mom prays, Dear Lord, bless my children with the wisdom to listen to their mother. You know, it's like praying over them, but, you know, preaching to them at the same time. He says here, Lord, would you fill them with joy as they give thanks to you, right? Wink, wink, hint, hint. What he's saying is is that one of the gateways to joy is the door of gratitude, is, is stopping and to consider those things for which we can be grateful. And, uh, This joy that is filled by gratitude, he gives us just two thoughts to think about as we consider walking through the door of gratitude on the way to joy. He invites us to stop and think about how grateful we might be for what God is preparing ahead for us. In verse 12, he continues, he says, he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. The inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. He's talking about the promise of what lie ahead for those who follow Jesus Christ. It's the hope of heaven. Um, I don't know how much heaven kind of gets you, get your bones going. Um, but heaven was a constant thought of Jesus. It was something he talked a lot about. And when we start to, if we, we stop thinking about our kind of cultural portraits of heaven, because a lot of that is very yawn worthy. If we start to consider what Jesus described heaven to be, it becomes a little more electrifying and something to really start thinking about. It does produce gratitude and it kind of hints hits at that joy. Um, Jesus described heaven in lots of places. One of his his, uh, famous places was in the upper room discourse as he was sharing with his disciples his last words before going to the cross. And there he describes heaven in a few ways. I just want to stop and think about it. First, he describes heaven as a home. He says, don't be afraid. I'm going to the cross. I'm going away, but if I go away, I'm going to come back for you, but I go to prepare a place for you in my father's home, home. You know, some far off distant 
imaginative land where we're floating away on wispy clouds, that's hard to get excited about. But just the idea of what home means is something we can get excited about. That word home, for anyone who has had long travels or has had to for some, for some period of time be separated from their family or right now, even though you have a physical place to be, feels like a wanderer without a place. That word home is such a powerful and a rich word. Uh, there was a Bible commentator, F.B. Meyer, who says this, the word home, it will draw the wanderer from the ends of the earth. It will nerve the sailor, the soldier, the explorer with indomitable endurance. It will bring a mist of tear to the eyes of the hardened criminal and soften the heart of stone. This world is not our home, but for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, we have a home, an inheritance that is waiting for us on the other side of this life because of Jesus, a home. He describes it not just as a a home, but he describes it as a very, very big home. Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many mansions, meaning this is a space that is prepared for a lot of people. If you just stop and think about what will heaven be like when, number one, we ourselves and everyone there have been fully transformed into the people we were always intended to be, uninhibited by our insecurities and our pride and our lust and our fears, no longer broken, but made whole, and able to interact with people and engage with people on a level that's not tinted by our selfishness and our greed and our, our insecurities, but just pure, sweet, true relationship. And it's, this heaven is just going to be this endless supply of beautiful, interesting, wonderful people. Some people that we know, some people that we are inspired by and countless lives who we have never thought of, but who themselves will be the sweetest and most wonderful of experiences to share eternity with. A home filled with that kind of people. And uh, lastly, think about this. Jesus says, uh, it's a place where you're gonna be together with me forever. He says, if I go away, I go to prepare a place for you. When it's done, I will come and I will get you so that you will be with me forever. Um, In his The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this way. He says, the faint, far-off result of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world, what he's talking about is our physical pleasures that he describes now. Let me read it again. The faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world's uh, are what we now call physical pleasures. So think about what just we enjoy now, a good meal, sweet music, like a beautiful sunset, right? We think of those things now. And even thus filtered, this is a broken world, but that stuff's pretty slick. Like a great filet, like a beautiful dark roast cup of coffee on a, on a brisk morning, like the Sierras lit with all sorts of colors in the sunrise. Like that's some pretty cool stuff, even in a fallen world. He says they're too much for our present management. We can't contain even earthly pleasures that are there right now for us. He says this, what would it be to taste at the fountainhead 
that stream of which even now these lower reaches prove so intoxicating. Meaning, you know, the one who's behind all of these incredibly pleasurable experiences that we have in this world is our creator God. And that creator God is preparing a place, like we're in a place that he prepared for us and we broke. And it's still a pretty cool place. Broken, but lots of fun stuff. What is it gonna be like to go to the, like, the unfiltered version of a beautifully prepared place for us? He says, the whole man is to drink from joy at the fountain of joy. That's what's ahead of us. Okay, lastly, in addition to thinking about what's ahead for us, Paul says, you wanna know where the gateway to joy is? It's stopping to think about what, what God did for us in setting his son to the cross. He says this in verse 13. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. It's a very interesting way to describe the truth of human history. We were once a part of a kingdom, enslaved by a kingdom that was an enemy kingdom to God's. By our own wandering from him and by our own choice, we spurned God's love and joined a kingdom that it was out to enslave us, exploit us, destroy others through us, and then ultimately destroy us. And God in his great love, like the New Living Translation just butchered it. It's like the most uninteresting word, transferred. Plucked us from that hell hole that was our reality. And he has placed us into a reality that we could never in our wildest dreams imagine nor on our best efforts deserve from the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious son. And I love how he describes this. He did that by purchasing our freedom and in doing so, he forgave our sins. We have a lot to be grateful for. And as we consider those things and as we truly do thank the Lord for them, it does produce joy that kind of joy inexpressible and filled with glory. So what does Paul pray for these Christians? What might we pray for ourselves this year for three things? Wisdom, true wisdom. God, would you give us wisdom this year that our lives might be more pleasing to you, more filled with the kind of things that really matter, that we might grow more and more into the image of your son. He prays for wisdom. He prays for strength. God, would you give us the patience and the endurance to maintain long obedience in the same direction. And he prays for joy. Lord, would you fill us with your joy inexpressible and full of glory? Let's pray. So Lord, we ask now that you would wash over us these very same things that Paul prayed for the Colossians, wisdom, strength, joy. As we respond now to what it is that you've been saying to us, would you meet with us personally, individually, that this would be a genuine moment of communion with you and that uh, we might leave here with a little more of the, the hope, a little more of the faith, a little more of the love that is produced by those who are under the influence of the good news of your son, Jesus. Lord, would you make us hungry for the kind of wisdom, the kind of strength, the kind of joy that has been described here before us today. And then Lord, would you meet that hunger? Would you, would you quench that thirst by 
pouring your Holy Spirit down fresh on us, giving us new wisdom, new strength, new joy. We pray that together in Jesus' name. Amen.